Hello and welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. My name is Ed Cunningham, I'm the host of this show and I'm joined today by Mark Maslin who's a professor of Earth System Science at University College London. He is an expert when it comes to human evolution and climate change and the impact that humans have on the planet. And his latest book, How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, is out of the seven books I've read on climate change recently, it's the easiest to read and it's the most digestible. So if you're looking for an easy place to start, Mark's book is great. But also, I can just hand over to Mark and the conversation that I had with him to give you a basic understanding of what's happening with our planet and how we might go about trying to change it. Now, the interest in keeping the lights on at Need to Read, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And BetterHelp provide an online therapy service to millions of people all over the world. I've made it no secret how much psychological therapies have helped me in the past. I think mental anguish is something that we all experience. And chatting to a professional is quite a good way to get to the bottom of that and sift through the mess that can be your brain at times. Now, if you're thinking of taking the plunge, consider yourself nudged by me. All you have to do is head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read, run through a five or 10 minute questionnaire, and within 48 hours, you'll be matched with a therapist who suits your needs. You'll also get 10% off your first month for just being a need to read listener. And all you have to do is head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. And there are plenty of ways you can support the podcast and there's details for that in the description of the show. But without further ado, I'd like to hand over to my conversation with Mark Maslin, which, of course, if you enjoy, you can feel free to share. First thing to do uh, for people listening would be just to get a good understanding of, of what your background is and, and how you've come to write a book on how we can save the planet. So I'm Mark Mazin. I'm a professor of Earth System Science at University College London, which sounds like a terrible mouthful. But the way I sum it up to my mates and relatives is I study climate change in the past, the present and the future. It means that I can look at things like early human evolution. I can look at how human societies have evolved. I can look at how we are changing the climate now and into the future. And I have to say, I've been very lucky because I have probably the best job in the world because as an academic, I get to study and research whatever I want to. I get to work with some of the smartest and brightest students and colleagues in the world. But also I get encouraged to go and do other things. So I had set up my own company uh, 10 years ago, Resitech Limited, uh, which now employs uh, 50 people. And we use satellite data, remote sensing data to actually give governments, companies and NGOs meaningful environmental data so they can actually manage their resources. Um, but I also do a lot of media. I do a lot of writing, popular writing, and occasionally I write books such as the uh, uh, How to Save Our Planet, The Facts. You know, just a subtle title there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So so what is How to Save the Planet, The Facts about then? <laughs> so I was deeply frustrated by books that I had written and books that uh, all my dear colleagues like Catherine Hayhoe, Michael Mann, even Bill Gates, because we would written books, which I call worthy books. These are big tomes about the climate change uh, problem, about environmental crises. And actually, 
for most people, the only way to actually change their mind would literally be able, uh, literally hit them over the head with this book. So I felt there was a need for a different type of book, something that, as I explained to uh, friends of mine, I could actually give to my mates that I play football with and go, here, read this. Okay, it's short, it's uh, concise, and it tells you what I do. And I was listening to a podcast because I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, mm. And this one was In Our Time with Melvin Bragg. And they were talking about one of my favorite books, uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu's. Now, this is a 5,000-year-old book, and it's written by a Chinese general or generals. We're not sure if it was a collective, uh, where they actually distilled all of their wisdom about how to fight a war. I mean, this book is so important that the U.S. Marine Corps, the British Army, still use it as one of their core texts. And it's written beautifully. I mean, it's written in bullet points, which says things like, do not put men on the ridge with sun behind, you know, have more spies than the enemy. And I thought, hang on, I could write a whole book like this. Um, and so I went away and started to think about this. I presented it to my editor, uh, who looked at me like I was some mad person. And she said, okay, well, you know, uh, you're, you're really passionate about this. Go and write me a couple of chapters. At which point I went, moi, I, I'm an author. I don't have to write chapters. You know, sort of like she said, no, no, please just go and write some chapters. <laughs> so I wrote a couple of chapters, at which point she then went, I get this. And we submitted it to publishers and a load of publishers uh, were very keen on it. And Penguin just uh, just had the right, style and idea about how to actually pull out some of the big quotes and really make it work and so really the book is three chapters the first three chapters of bullet points of human evolution to where we are now how do we get in this mess i then have a chapter that says well why do people deny it and what are the different flavors of denial you know how can you recognize that somebody is trying to delay you doing good stuff then there's a chapter that says, well, what does a bad world and a good future world look like? You know, is, is there a difference? And if so, why are we so committed to trying to improve the world and keep it to less than one and a half degrees? And then the last four chapters are the ones that I'm most proud of because they basically go, right, what can individuals do? Tick, tick, tick. Lots of bullet points for people to actually go through and say, well, I can do that one, but I can't do that one. What can companies do? Tick, 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 so they can go through and just follow the recipe. What can governments do? And there's lots of really positive things that government can do. And then the last one is what can the international community do? What can we actually do collectively and globally? So it's really a bit more like a handbook of how to save the planet. Like, And it's non-linear. So you don't have to start at the beginning. You can literally dive in. If you're suddenly a CEO of a company, you go, okay, I've been told to read this book. I'm literally just going to read the company book. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just going to read that chapter for Mark and just go, oh, okay, we already do that. We don't do that, but we can. Don't do that, can do that. You know, you can literally go through it as a sort of tick list. So very different, very radical book. And hopefully people can actually engage with the crisis in a very different way and very positive way because there are so many great solutions. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't take much to pique someone's interest like we were talking about just before we started recording is it it took one small bit of information from like an unrelated book 
to get me interested in climate change. And now for the last two, three weeks, I've been doing nothing but reading and listening to stuff about the climate crisis. Um, so it, just picking up your book and I'm going to buy one and put one in the toilet in my house because I think it's it's going to be people's only reading material in there because there's no other books in there. But it's people can just flick through. They could pick a page and come out after a poo knowing way more than they ever knew. I, I think that's the perfect summation of my book, which is have a good poo, work out how to save the universe. I love that. Um, but also, I think it really uh, echoes what I try to say to people, which is as individuals, we feel powerless. We feel quite small. But actually, that's not true. I, I work with many different companies and I'm being uh, very lucky to be asked to consult but actually, the reason I've been asked to come in and help out is because a couple of individuals have had a conversation. They've, they've uh, stood around the coffee table or the water cooler, if you're in America, and basically gone, I'm really worried about this climate change. And the other person goes, oh, I'm so glad you are. So am I. And this climate anxiety actually is really quite prevalent. But as soon as two people talk, they go, well, Actually, if you feel the same, why can't we do something? And I've seen a billion-dollar company go from not caring about the environment, having no understanding about the risk of climate change within five years, winning top prizes with the Carbon Disclosure Project just because of those conversations. And suddenly the whole company goes, hang on, this is good for our bottom line. It's good for employee morale, and it's good for our image. And hey, we're making even more money. Excellent. Yeah, it's kind of like leaning into it. It's it's doing the opposite of what people think. People think it's going to be this expensive task to to help out or help fix, but it's actually not the case. I know that you've um, got parts in the book about the economics of this, and that's quite a big argument for tonight is to dig their heels in and talk about how expensive it is. Um, but what does the landscape actually look like there? Well, I'll give you a classic example. If the British government had listened to scientists and 10 years ago put in a huge program of renewable energy, so wind, solar, tidal, hydro, if we'd literally gone for it, guess what? our actual energy prices would have risen a little bit because of the fossil fuel crisis uh, because of the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but it wouldn't be going up four times this autumn. So therefore, guess what? If we'd gone renewable, if we'd gone sort of like energy security route, the normal people wouldn't be in this cost of living crisis. Also, if we look around the world, something like 10 million people die prematurely every year because of air pollution directly from burning of fossil fuels. So if we switch to renewables, suddenly we save a huge number of lives. And again, it's that whole thing, which is there are so many things we should do anyway that also help climate change. And I think this is where I get deeply frustrated by climate deniers and certain politicians who just don't want to actually change, even though all those changes are better for the country, better for the normal people, and probably get you re-elected much quicker. 
Yeah. Well, let's let's stick on the topic of climate deniers um, for the moment because there's some research that I've been doing because I, I, I kind of I'm interested to see what they're saying. It's I've only read six books now on on the climate crisis, so like I'm I'm not an expert, but I knew a load more than what I used to know. But there are people positioning themselves as experts, giving information that kind of says everyone just needs to calm down and not worry about this. And one example, I've got two examples for you. One is Matt Ridley. Um, and he says, because we're putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, uh, that's actually better for plant growth. So the planet's getting greener. And he references, I think it's the normalized difference vegetation index saying that in a 30 year period, there was a 20% growth in greenery on the planet. And he references science saying the more carbon in the atmosphere, less plants have to give out their water to grow so they actually grow at a better rate is he missing the point there okay so matt ridley does that incredible thing that deniers do which is use a little bit of truth and then twist it in the wrong way so absolutely guess what the planet has got greener actually it got greener during the 1990s okay that has now actually flattened off and isn't changing that much the majority of that is because in China, they reforested the whole of Western China, okay, because they had cut down lots of forests, uh, they were almost in a dust bowl, and therefore they mandated that people had to plant trees. So the farmers had to plant trees to try to actually stabilize the soil, stabilize the local rainfall, and stop flash flooding. They also used it as a really incredible social tool because what they did was they said, you poor farmers, you must plant these trees and we will give you money because they're desperately looking a way to actually move money from the rich east to the incredibly poor west. So this worked both mm -hmm. ways. We also saw this in India where the boosts to agriculture meant that sort of like small farmers were planting trees for shade, but they were also uh, growing uh, crops in a more efficient way. So this greening was fantastic. So yes, is there greening? There was. Was it actually due to fertilization of CO2? Yeah, no. Now, again, another little bit of truth. Is, uh, does CO2 act as a fertilizer? Yes, it does. We know from laboratory experiments you put more co2 in a room with plants they grow better and faster great however when you put that on a global scale it has a small effect but compared with the impact of extreme weather events that completely wipes out so for example 2010 there was the Moscow heat wave, which basically affected all of the grain production in Western uh, Russia. Again, didn't matter that CO2 was higher and fertilizing it. It was so dry, all the actual grain died. OK, so again, that impacted global food prices. We had a food spike. And so therefore, this very small effect isn't uh, influencing the impacts so climate change impacts are increased uh, extreme weather events. Let's just take the UK. We're in a 12-month drought, okay? Our agriculture is on its knees. And then on top of that, we've had heat spikes of 40 degrees. And let me put that into context, okay? Mm -hmm. The average temperature 
of England in July, peak temperatures between 22 and 24 degrees. Okay, that's that's Mm -hmm. supposed to be what July, even with climate change, is supposed to be about 24 degrees. We had a heat wave of 40 degrees. That is 16 degrees warmer than it should be. Now, I repeat, 16 degrees warmer than it should be. That's the effect of climate change, not oh, a little bit of fertilization of plants. Yeah. So it's almost as if saying, like, I went on holiday and it was a little bit sunnier, so I had a better time. So climate change isn't that bad. Yep. Okay. And and the second one I'd like to talk about is Jordan Peterson, because he has quite a lot of influence and anything he posts about the climate instantly gets millions of views. He wrote mm-hmm. an article in The Telegraph uh, very recently, which looked to me just to be neoliberal propaganda and other orientated perfectionism, essentially. Uh, but there's a part of a podcast that I'd just like to play to you and and i'd like you to see like what what is this tactic and how do we look out for this what are the uh environmentalists thinking we love the planet it's like do you we love the poor do you okay let's pit the planet against the poor who wins the planet okay you don't love the poor that much do you love the planet or do you hate capitalism let's pit those two things against each other oh well it turns out we actually hate capitalism how can we tell? Because you're willing to break it. And you know what's going to happen. So what's going to happen in Sri Lanka with these 20 million people who now have nothing to eat? Are they going to eat all the animals? Are they going to burn all the firewood? They're stockpiling firewood in Germany. It's like, so is your environmental globalist utopia going to kill the poor and destroy the planet? And that's okay, because we'll wipe out capitalism. So that was him few days ago on Lex Friedman's podcast, um, a popular American scientist, uh, coder, podcaster. And like, what are the tactics at play there? Because it seems to me that it's just like it's condescending and would make people watching that think that environmentalists are the, the stupid ones, which for me doesn't seem to be the case. And I imagine the same for you. So the big tactic, which is a real sleight of hand, is the idea that uh, dealing with climate change will make poor people poorer. And that's a really nasty, nasty approach because poverty is a political decision, okay? And it is clear that we could get rid of poverty. We could redistribute wealth within countries, okay, fairly, and therefore extreme poverty would disappear. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the United Kingdom ha- is the fifth richest country in the world, but we still have extreme poor and we have food banks. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we don't distribute the money. If we look at what neoliberalism has done, it has also produced 26 billionaires that actually own the same wealth as the bottom 3.9 billion people. So when Peterson says, oh, actually, you know, we must look, protect the poor. It's like, well, hang on, guys. Separate the two things. Firstly, why don't we deal with poverty and actually redistribute money and all the resources properly and fairly and therefore drive sort of like capitalism by actually giving people wealth and actually giving them the ability to buy food? Mm. Interesting thing is famines are not a lack of food. 
we have enough food in the world to feed 11 billion people. There's only 7.9 billion of us, okay? That's still a large number, but there's a lot of spare food. Famine is caused by lack of money. So when he uses Sri Lanka as an example, the reason why those people are starving is not because of climate change or the planet or anything like that. It is because they don't have money. Okay, so therefore, neoliberalism has caused them not to have any wealth. Now, that's different from capitalism. Okay, so again, you have to be very careful that the right wingers think that neoliberalism is capitalism. It isn't. Again, if we go back to 1973, USA, President Nixon, the Republican, okay, good, solid capitalist, he actually tried to put a bill through to have universal basic income for American people. He said, look, the wealth of America should be given back to the people so they can actually live well and buy American products. The only reason it didn't pass is because the Democrats didn't think it went further enough. Okay. Now, this wasn't socialism because you had Russia. You knew what socialism was. But now with neoliberalism, anything that looks after poor people is socialism. Okay. It isn't. It's just normal capitalism and looking after the actual uh, economy. So it's really nasty. The other thing then is to deal with the other problem, which is the environment. So as I've shown you, if we had renewable energy in each country, guess what? Everybody would have energy security. They wouldn't be beholden to Russian gas or Saudi oil. So therefore, people will be safer. Their energy costs would be more stable. Tick. Also, if you happen to be a true capitalism, uh, sorry, if you happen to be a true capitalist and you believe in the neoliberal sort of viewpoint of competition, why do we have fossil fuel subsidies? Okay. Mm-hmm. I would say, fine. Okay, Jordan, let's go for it. Let's try your approach, but do it properly. Okay, remove all fossil fuel subsidies, which is about $500 billion. That's half a trillion dollars per year is spent around the world on fossil fuel subsidies. Okay, so let's remove all of those and let's see who wins. Because we already know, even with those subsidies, renewable energy is cheaper, more reliable, and actually, of course, safer in the long run. So again, you can play it both ways. You cannot blame the environmentalists for poverty. That's you. Okay, that's you, the people, the politicians who have decided not to share the wealth. Also, how about stuff like the evil environmentalists? Well, actually, no, we just want to actually keep the planet habitable so we can have a place that everybody can live into the future and actually have wealth happiness, health, and all of the things that go with being human. So the idea then that the the poor are going to be the ones to pay the most out of this is is not necessarily true. This is in fact at all. It's like the that they're going to benefit the most. And would it be um correct to say that the people who are the the, the poorest 3.8 billion in the planet are the ones who will be affected the worst by the actual changes in the climate, the extreme weather conditions, droughts, famines, things like that? So one of the most interesting pieces of research was done by Oxfam. And they then looked at lifestyle carbon emissions. Okay, and so they looked at around the world who's emitting carbon. And what's interesting is if you take the richest 
10% of the world. So that's not the richest countries, that's the richest people. So that is the rich people in China, India, Britain, USA, Argentina, you know, you name it, the richest 10% globally. They emit 50% of all of the lifestyle carbon into the atmosphere, okay? The bottom poorest 50% emit less than 10%. So again, it is about consumption. It is about the incredibly affluent and wealthy in the world over-consuming and putting lots of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So again, when you look at it like that, you can see that there is a juxtaposition between who's causing the problem and those who are going to be most affected. And those are, of course, the people that are incredibly poor. Okay, they do not have resources. They just have enough money to actually feed themselves and their family. And they're the ones are always at the edge. Because what people forget is let's have a look at the state of humanity now. Okay, Mm -hmm. so seven million children die needlessly every year of preventable diseases and starvation. There are 825 million people that go to bed feeling hungry every night because they do not have enough resources to buy enough food. One billion people, so that's one in eight persons on the planet, still does not have regular access to safe drinking water. Okay, Mm -hmm. Just, Just something simple as, I'm not even sure that this water is safe to drink. And Jordan Peterson is basically lecturing us on sort of like not saving the planet when basically one in eight people doesn't have enough safe water. So, again, you have to be very careful with this rhetoric because it's all about very rich people staying very rich. Yeah, that's the idea, isn't it? It's that they're going to have to make some form of sacrifice and that is getting people's backs up. Well, but I, again... I think that's also a false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. So what really frustrates me is if you're a proper capitalist, you should look at the facts. At the moment, if we look at the global economy, $8 trillion, that's about 10% of the world's economy, is in the green economy. We know that green companies grow faster, make more profit than fossil fuel companies and other old-style industries. So if you're going to invest, you want to invest in the green economy, which is basically changing the way we think about things, changing the way we uh, generate energy. So even if you're a hard-nosed capitalist, you want to put the money where the actual sort of like businesses are. Think about it. One of the largest companies in the world is Tesla, which makes Mm. electric cars. Okay, so again, you have to start thinking outside the box you've got to think of what is the global economy going to be in the next 10 20 30 years not oh i really wish we could go back to the 1950s and i think that's something you really have to actually get through to people which is if you really want to make money this is the way to go so again i can destroy that argument as well which is hey if you're a hard-nosed capitalist i know where you should be investing because that's going to make you the most money i love that i think that's such an easy, easy kind of point to make. It's almost like shooting in an open goal, that the way that you put it. Yeah, but they move the goal. Yeah. <laughs> again, yeah. they go, yeah, no, 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 we, we weren't talking about that. <laughs> we're, not, we're not talking about that. So, yeah, I mean, again, 
I mean, that's the biggest problem, which is everything that we discuss about dealing with climate change, dealing with the environmental crisis are all really sensible, like protect biodiversity, make sure that there is a clear distinction between nature and humanity. Why? Because then it stops zoonotic diseases from jumping from wildlife into humans, and then we don't have pandemics. Okay, sensible. You know, these are all very straightforward, logical, sensible things which governments don't do. Yeah, and and I think that's what I'm beginning to understand is that it's this top-down approach is the most necessary thing that kind of has to happen. There has to be subsidies into different industries. There has to be you have to let the market actually play itself you have to let these companies go and be not profitable and kind of fade in, into the background so again i think that it is a tripartite so it is a, a balancing act between governments corporations and individuals mm-hmm. so if you think about governments so governments actually have a lot more power than they realize because firstly New uh, economists like Mariana Mazzucato, Kate Rowworth have all been showing that actually governments are really good at driving innovation. Okay, mm. uh, actually they they have more uh, driving innovation than anything else because what they do is they can tax, they can incentivize through uh, subsidies, they can regulate, um, and therefore they can change the direction that companies go in which then mean that companies invest in particular uh, approaches and that drives innovation. We also know that governments invest in Uh, R&D. Again, how do we get a vaccination for COVID within six months? Because Western governments and other governments around the world have been investing in medical research since the 1940s onwards, okay? billions of dollars that the taxpayer never realized was being invested in science because it's necessary to actually have that there in times of crisis. Okay, tick. You also then have corporations. So corporations have this great ability to move very fast. Okay, Mm -hmm. governments are much slower. So if you incentivize uh, companies, then suddenly change will happen. Okay, so if you put in a mandate or rule or regulation, suddenly they'll change and they'll still be making money because that's what they're good at. But we also need individuals. So individuals are absolutely key because one, they demand change for governments. Okay, Mm -hmm. they basically vote. They can protest. They can actually say what they want. But they're also really important when it comes to corporations, because what they buy, how they buy. And what they demand is really key. And corporations keep a very close eye on this to make sure that they are actually still in the marketplace. Because it's really interesting, because if you think about it, the reason why the fossil fuel industry is so paranoid is because they don't want to do a blockbuster. So for the younger viewers here or the uh, younger listeners, Blockbuster was a chain of shops that actually around the world, you used to go and get your video and then your DVD and you used to rent it from them. Okay, they did not see the whole Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime. They never saw the streaming services coming. And guess what? They went extinct. Mm -hmm. And again, oil companies. 
gas companies, coal companies. Do you know what? We want them to go extinct. Why? Because there's a new economy. We want a new economy for a new generation that actually is uh, focused on producing clean, safe energy for everybody on the world. Yeah, I think it sounds doesn't sound too idealist, really. It sounds quite nope. reasonable. It yeah, sounds like it, just... it could well happen. Do you do you feel quite optimistic? So I think that I am a lot more optimistic now than I was 10 years ago. So okay. 10 years ago, we really were facing awful uh, climate change in the future. So we were still talking about what would happen if we warmed the planet by four or five degrees by the end of the century. Now, the interesting thing is with the climate negotiations, if we actually get all the countries to actually do their pledges, okay, these are these mm -hmm. uh, pledges that they put in, say, look, we're going to keep it to that. We're still looking at, say, 2.8 degrees, uh, but we're not looking at four degrees. So mm -hmm. already, because renewables are now so much more cheaper than sort of like fossil fuels, there's been this shift. And so again, what we're doing is we're slowly changing the economy towards renewable energy, which is great. And so therefore, I think that we are looking at less climate change than we were 10 years ago. But there's a lot to do because as we've seen, we've warmed the planet by about 1.2 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And already in 2022, we're seeing extreme heat waves in Europe, North America. We're seeing incredible floods in China. We're seeing uh, heat waves, wildfires, droughts in Africa. We're seeing more extreme events every single month. And this mm -hmm. is a wake up call. This is the point where we go, oh, hang on, hang on. We've delayed for 30 years any meaningful action mm. and actually all the actions are oh really good for us <laughs> reduce pollution give us energy security make people healthier and make them safer oh why don't we do it anyway and if it helps the climate tick that's brilliant as well yeah it seems like a like a win-win how do we get to this this point where we've we've caused so much destruction then and does that mean is this a good time to ask you to define the Anthropocene era, epoch? Absolutely. So the Anthropocene is the way scientists are viewing the present day. So when we look at the impact of humanity, it is so large on the planet that we see that we are now a geological superpower. So we're having mm -hmm. the same impact on the planet as plate tectonics or meteorite impact. And I'll try to actually give you some examples of this. Mm. So, for example, we move every year more soil, sediment, and rock than all the natural processes put together. Damn the geologists. Mm. We also have made enough concrete to cover the whole world in a layer two millimeters thick. And yes, that includes the oceans. Wow. Damn the engineers. We also make 300 million tons of plastic which end up in all our rivers and our ocean and i can also tell you that we have microplastics in our blood and has been found in the placentas of our babies okay so 
Where does that come and from? And the chemists. How does it get into us? Microplastics. Mm. We eat it. We absorb it. It gets into our bloodstream because it's very small. So we now have microplastics as part of the human body. Wow. That's how ubiquitous our pollution has come. We have also cut down three trillion trees. That's half the trees on the planet. And the fact that really, I would say, makes me realize we really are in the Anthropocene is if we weigh all the land mammals, okay? So I have a huge giant scale, put them all on and see uh, how it's split up. 30% of mammals are humans. There's 7.9 billion. There's a lot of us. But 67% of the mammals are our livestock and our pets, okay? Just 3% of the weight of mammals on Earth are the wild animals that David Attenborough and the other naturalists go out and film so we can sit on the sofa on a Sunday night and watch all these wildlife films. Just 3%. That's how much we have completely changed the face of planet Earth. So Welcome when... to the Anthropocene. Wow. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, <laughs> when when was that different? When like at what stage to be switched to domesticating everything and and shifting the like the comparative weights? Do we know when it would have been at say fifty fifty or? Oh, uh, so if we take the big view, there are five major types of global society. Okay, so. Uh, if we take human evolution and the uh, rise of Homo sapiens about 200,000 years ago in uh, Africa, we were hunter-gatherers. Mm -hmm. And hunter-gatherers basically spread out, they collect food, they hunt, etc. And actually, interestingly, they were pretty destructive. I mean, they wiped out most of the megafauna wherever they actually arrived, including mammoths. Okay, so okay. we weren't the benign uh, sort of like nice hunter gatherers. No, we really did uh, change the landscape. But it's about 10,000 years ago, the end of the last ice age, where we have run out of sort of uh, huge megafauna to eat. And there was this crisis, but also the warming conditions, the increase in CO2 meant that domestication of particular crops and animals actually came about. And it comes uh, in about 14 different places uh, around the world. So Central and South America, in West Africa, the Middle East, and of course, in parts of India and in China, and even slightly later in Papua New Guinea. So this was something that was part of that human condition. We got to that uh, point and we started to domesticate whatever was local. And then, of course, when we started to move those plants and animals into the temperate zone, boom, suddenly productivity went through the roof and these plants and animals actually uh, were incredibly productive. We then have to wait until about the 1600s or I'd say the 1500s and into the 1600s where Europe had started uh, to expand. Uh, lots of principalities and kingdoms constantly fighting, and therefore they then sent people out to colonize the world. 
And that then is the birth of mercantile capitalism. That's where sort of like the rape and pillage of the world meant that uh, goods and services were grabbed and then taken back to Europe to fuel more expansionism. You then get to, I would say, the 1840s, where you have the invention of the Industrial Revolution, which is interesting because it only happens in one place, the Midlands in England. And this spreads like a virus. I mean, within sort of like 50 years, it's um, through the whole of Europe, all the way down into Ukraine and Russia. It's in the USA, Canada and Japan. And this Industrial Revolution then changes our approach to manufacturing. And that then produces lots of goods and services. And we know the effect of that. And then the last change occurs after the Second World War, whereby uh, things are changing very rapidly. And we then shift from industrial capitalism to consumer capitalism, the idea that uh, we all need goods and we all need things to buy. And therefore, that has driven massive expansion in energy use and the amount of stuff that we actually need uh, or we think we need. And so that's the third uh, that's sort of, that's the fifth actual major society. And the interesting thing is all five societies still exist on planet Earth. You can still find hunter-gatherers, agriculturalists, mercantile capitalists, uh, industrial capitalists, because industrial revolution is still spreading across the world, mm-hmm. and consumer capitalism. So again, this is the big picture. And with each one of these steps, and I won't call it progress, mm-hmm. um, the reason being with each one of these steps, it's usually the poor, the indigenous people, the vulnerable people that suffer with each one of these changes. But what's interesting is that the population of the earth jumps up markedly. The amount of energy that every individual uses jumps up. And so does knowledge. Mm-hmm. Jumps up every single time. But so does the environmental impact. So one of the most interesting things that Simon Lewis and I came to the conclusion in our book, The Human Planet, uh, which was also published by Penguin, is that in the future, we have to break those laws of history. So population, well, population is stabilizing. It's going to stabilize about 10 billion people by the middle of the century. And that's interesting because that's because half the population The female population, when they are educated to secondary school level and above, they take control of fertility. And therefore, that's why we're having that stabilization curve. Knowledge. Hey, guess what, guys? Knowledge is out of the uh, out of Pandora's box. We're never going to be able to stuff it back. The problem we have now is actually trying to work out which is true knowledge and which is fake knowledge. Okay, so that's one of the uh, challenges of this century. Energy use. We're still going to have to actually boost energy. There are so many people, billions of people that are in energy poverty around the world. So we need to generate a lot more energy. Mm -hmm. But we have to do that while actually reducing the environmental impact or even repairing the environmental impact. And I think this is something that's really important about the concept of the Anthropocene, which is unlike other geological uh, effects, we can use our impact both ways. If we want to reforest vast areas of Northern Europe or the Amazon, we can. 
we're humanity. We have all the resources, all the money, all the wealth that we need to do that. If we want to clean up our oceans, if we want to actually stop all this pollution, we can. And so therefore, I think what's interesting about the Anthropocene is it's a way of, I would say, translating to people all our impacts, sorry, all our impacts, not just the climate, but also the environment, the pollution. And we need to think about all of that. And actually, the interesting thing is you can envisage a world where 10 billion people live within the environmental sort of like constraints, actually living a healthy, long life with aspirations, with the idea that they can improve themselves, their children can go off to college and university if they want to. We can actually envisage that world without having to destroy the planet. And I think that's mm. something that people have to actually take away and say, well, what do you want? Do you want a bad Anthropocene or a good Anthropocene? Because trust me, it's going to be the Anthropocene because humanity has so much control and impact on the environment that that's not going to change. What we can do is change the direction. I mean, people are even talking about how we could repair the Arctic and actually try to actually help ice grow again in the Arctic if we do it the right way. So, again, we don't have to damage the planet. Humanity can actually improve the planet. Because, again, think about it. Planet Earth is the only place that we know that there's life in this universe. And actually, we are the intelligent being that really, if you think about it, we're the custodians of this blue planet, which has life on it. So that's a huge responsibility. We should be looking after it. Yeah. And where is the like degradation of duty from the individual then? Because not everyone feels that connection. It must be the case that not everyone feels that responsibility. Um, and maybe some people are, are afraid of that responsibility because there, there are some pretty good ways to not be responsible uh, in 2022. Okay, so I think you have to be very careful about this and talking about responsibility. So this is a really interesting way that the fossil fuel industry and certain commentators have shifted the blame, mm -hmm. which is, well, we just produce the petrol we just produce the gas you the individual choose to use it therefore the guilt is yours therefore it's all your fault you should make better choices well no i'm sorry i don't have any choice about gas central heating i do not have any choice about wh which car i buy because i can't afford an electric car because mm. you priced me out of the market so again we have to be very careful about blaming individuals and if you think about it there's billions and billions of people out there who just want to be able to actually survive the day, get enough food, make a little bit of money so they can actually get their kids a better life and move on in the world. So mm. blaming the individual is not the way to go. I'd just like to point out, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not blaming the individual. I think like the, the cruel optimism side is like, we have to take a little bit on, right? Uh, well, I think that the way we need to deal with individuals is, firstly, I think individuals have to actually understand that mm. they are part of humanity. And it's really interesting that there is a real difference in the way my generation and the young generation thinks of the world. Mm. 
Okay. The reason being is they've grown up with mobile phones. They've grown up with Google. They've grown up with climate change. They understand how small the world is because they can talk to anybody. Okay. They can mm -hmm. talk to everybody, all 7.9 uh, billion people if they want to. They also have seen through the pandemic how fragile human societies and how dangerous nature can be so again mm -hmm. i think there's a change there so yes individuals have to understand that they're part of humanity and so therefore we're very good at thinking at individual level we're pretty good at thinking at family level we're good at thinking of community and we're actually quite good at thinking of country level and patriotism and things like that what we're not very good is thinking globally we are a global species and we need to start thinking like one and acting like one. But how do 7.9 billion people act as a species? Well, you do it through representatives. So this is where mm. we are beholden on our politicians, the people that actually represent us both nationally and internationally. And so therefore, we as individuals should demand better leaders. We mm. want people that have our best interests at heart. We want people that actually think about the planet and strategize about how we as a planet can move forward. And I think that's where the power of individuals comes from, which is, hang on, why can't we do better things? And again, I'll come back to the example. Individuals have no understanding how important they are. I've seen people at church meetings talk about the environment and change how the church is operating. I've seen people at sports uh, uh, clubs basically going, hang on, guys, it's great we're doing sport. Could we actually do a bit better for the environment? I've seen people in companies change the whole company, and they're just middle managers talking about positive things they can do. So, again, I think we need to do all our little bits and again, the unfortunate thing is I can say to individuals, which is you're never going to be able to measure your impact. You'll never know what that conversation that you have in a pub on a Friday night might actually change the world. You don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a really good example. A 15-year-old Swedish girl sat outside Parliament with a handwritten placard complaining that the Swedish government wasn't taking climate change seriously. Okay. If I told any of you at that point, this is what this person was doing, they would go, no, really, not going to change the world. That's Greta Thunberg. Okay. So therefore, I'm sorry, you can make a difference. And the thing is, I think people realize that now that we can actually have a better world. There's no mm -hmm. reason. We don't have to listen to certain ilks or politicians who go, no, I'm sorry, you're going to have to stay poor. No. Why? Yeah, I, do you know what? I don't often speak to people about this stuff, but that's my exact question: is why? Like, why can't we just do something about it? Because everyone's had this like quite a defeatist attitude of, well, this is this is how it is, and we're going to have to deal with it. We have to like deal with the hands we dealt. It's like, hold on, can't we ask for maybe a new hand? <laughs> I, well, I think that's something that we have to really think about, and I think Extinction Rebellion. I think the uh, Friday uh, for climate strikes all have resonated. Mm. And again, I think there is a huge difference now than, say, 10 years ago. If you go out into the street and ask somebody, um, do you think climate change is happening? Go, yes. 
There was a really meaningful study last year in The Lancet. This is the mm-hmm. probably the most important medical journal in the world. Colleagues of mine uh, from the UK and around the world, they basically interviewed 10,000 young people about climate change. Yep. And guess what? Something like 55 to 75% of them, depending on which country they're from, were actually worried about climate change and it was affecting their moods and their sleep. And the interesting thing is it then creeps up to 80% of them blame their government. So we have this really interesting situation where we have governments of old people who don't realize that there is a whole generation that blame them for the situation that we're in. And the thing is, if I was a politician now, I'd be going, I want a legacy. I don't want my children to hate me. What do I do? You know, so how do I actually have that reputation when in 50 years time, when people open the history books, they go, oh, that person did X. And I think that's where we need to actually, I would say, really influence politicians to say, how do you want to be remembered? Yeah. Do you want to be remembered as a blip in the road to a better world that you held us back? You actually undermined a democracy. What, how do you want to be remembered? And I think that's something we need to do as individuals, which is say, I'm sorry, we deserve better leaders. We need people that really want to actually change the world for the better. And the stupid thing is renewable energy. We have an environmental and we have an economic crisis. People are talking about building more coal-fired power stations and building sort of like uh, uh, gas-fired power stations. They take 10 years. (laughs) You can build wind turbines and solar panels within a year or two. Hmm. So this is a crisis now. We need to deal with it now. So even the timescale doesn't work for their ideas of fossil fuels yeah i think that's i've I've read about france uh trying to build a new nuclear plant for like 20 billion it's taken them over 20 years maybe and and like if they put that money into solar energy it would have it'd be it would yield more positive results essentially um from from my understanding and these like explorations of new coal mines that's being funded essentially by our governments in some subsidies right so that's how we that's why we cannot like decouple the political and the environmental here Uh, the big problem is that we have a very clear mandate in law so in 2008 the uk uh signed and it had sort of like almost uh everybody of all political parties signing i think there was five right-wing MPs have refused to sign it. And this is the UK Climate Change Act. And this mandates that the UK will be net zero emissions by 2050. We have the Climate Change Committee that sets up five-year carbon budgets to try and help the government work out how to actually step down towards that net zero target. So we're mandated by law But then we have a government that's actually almost trying to ignore it and trying not to do that. So it's it's a very strange position we're in where we 
we've already decided we're going net zero. We also have a law that says we're going to net zero. And we have a government like a naughty child dragging its feet going, oh, do I have to? Do we really have to? Uh, yes, because it's actually good for the planet. It's good for the people of your country. It will make sure that prices of energy are stable. It will help poor people. And actually, it will boost jobs in the country. Why wouldn't you do it? Because we don't want to, because we like fossil fuels. It's like, really? Why? Yeah, I still need to march into Parliament and tell them all to grow up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if only we were allowed to. <laughs> um, Mark, that was amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. There. I don't right. want to take um, too much more of your time. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a real, real pleasure chatting to you. Um, where can people find and follow your work? Because you are lethal with these publications you keep keep chucking them out there books um public appearances where where can people keep up to date with it all uh so i have to say probably the best place to follow me is on twitter which is prof mark maslin um i rant quite frequently but i also post uh uh stuff of colleagues but i also put up my own blogs um, if people are interested in trying to catch up on specific issues, then I write a lot of blog articles for The Conversation. So if you just go on The Conversation and type my name in, all my articles, anything from why should we stabilize global population to why sulfur is the next resource crisis to why are we chopping down so many trees. So I, I distill lots of my ideas into short 800, 900 words pieces. Um, there's also lots of stuff on there about human evolution, which is one of my passions. And of course, as you said, Ed, I write books. So there is um, How to Save a Planet, The Facts. There's also Human Planet, How We Caused uh, the Actual Anthropocene, and another one on just pure human evolution, The Cradle of Humanity. Well, thank you very much for listening to that episode, everyone. If you have enjoyed it, please feel free to give me a review or share it or do any of that or just come back next week. It doesn't really bother me. Um, all of the details for Mark are in the description of the episode. Same for a need to read. If you want to check out anything I've been writing about, head to the Good to Know mailing list and you can see the archive there. If you want to talk to a professional about your mental health, which I recommend doing should you be struggling, head to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. And if your nutrition's pretty shit kind of like mine is then get athletic greens it's a good all-in-one green shake they're a b corp they're pretty good for the planet and they feed people every time you buy something they're good guys um and that's athleticgreens.com forward slash a need to read but that is it from me there will be an update episode on kind of what's happening with a need to read and an update on that why i'm no longer reading self-help uh, article that i wrote not too long ago as and when I get around to it. This new project is taking up a lot of time, but come October, November, when I actually finally release it, you'll hopefully understand why it's taking so much time because I'm thinking it might be quite good and maybe even better than a need to read has ever been in its whole entire lifespan. But I could be completely wrong and it could be dog shit. We'll have to wait and see. I love you all. Thanks so much for listening. Au revoir. Bye-bye.